I remember being in one of those discussions. You may have these kinds of discussions too from time to time. One of those discussions which started reasonably and rationally and then got vehement and loud uh, as it went on. Uh, a source more of heat than light. It was with a lesbian feminist social worker friend of mine. Uh, anyway, I, I made one of my more silly comments in defence of what she called the system. The system. And then she went on and said, and I quote, You would think that. You tick every power category there is. You are male, white, educated, western, heterosexual and wealthy. And that was the end of the discussion. Really, once someone's boxed you in like that and said, you would say that, you tick every power box there is, there's not really much comeback from that, is there? And so I just sort of acted like a goldfish for a bit. And went and got a drink. <laughs> Over the last two weeks, we've been looking at that disturbing book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, written by what some might say is a highly disturbed man, Ohelet, or the teacher, and we've seen that he has a modest proposal for life, which recognises both the possibilities and the limits of life and wisdom. His is a middle way in an all-or-nothing world, and I think that that can leave us a little uncomfortable, this middle way. It won't break itself on the rocks of the world's intractability, but nor will it spit the dummy and head for nimble. Rather, it is a way which does what, it's can, what it can, it fears God and knows that there's a time for everything under the sun and that God has made it this way so that we should fear Him. Today we're going to continue to walk uh, with wisdom from the teacher into an area which if we don't get our heads right, then we will find ourselves acting like fools. Namely, the question of power. Uh, I feel all six power categories. It's worth asking yourself how many you feel. And I suspect it's a lot. Uh, and if you're tempted to exclude yourself from some of them, uh, perhaps in here, particularly the wealthy one, you might say, oh, look, I'm just a poor student. That is nonsense, and perhaps I could ask you to pause until the end of the talk before you draw that conclusion. In world terms, the fact is that we, you and I, are powerful people destined for only greater and greater power in our worlds. You know what they say about power. It was Lord Acton who commented, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. The teacher looks at two forms of power in the chapters we're going to examine today. Economic power, the power of wealth, and political power, the power of rulers. And he speaks words of clarity and wisdom about both. First then, wealth. Wealth. We live in a world as much uh, now as it was then, as much then as it is now, a world of abject economic oppression. It's important that you don't insulate yourself from the reality of the world and that when you make your purchases, you make your purchases in the light of the reality that one billion people will not get enough food to eat today while at the same time obesity in the Western world is at record levels. That in the last 50 years, 400 million people have died from hunger and poor, poor sanitation, three times the number of people killed in wars. 
But in developing countries, 6 million children die each year, mostly from hunger-related causes, and that ending hunger is not that relatively expensive. One estimate is $13 billion per year more. It turns out that the Western world spends more annually on pet food than that. We live in a world of abject economic oppression. And the teacher knew it as well as anyone. Verse 1 of chapter 4. If you have your Bibles with you. Chapter chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. Look, the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power with no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who have already died, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. The fact is, the world is a miserable place for many, many people, oppressed with no one to comfort them. That is, no one to assist in changing their circumstances. Better to be dead, says the teacher, at least they have rest, but better still never to have been born. That is a sobering thought, isn't it, for a Tuesday lunchtime. Where does this oppression come from? Well, the teacher sees with piercing clarity. Verse 4, Then I saw that all the all toil and all skill in work come from one person's envy of another. This also is vanity and a chasing after wind. Envy, says the teacher. Envy is what drives people to perpetuate a world in which some are up and some are down. Envy, the dissatisfaction with what I have and the desire for what someone else has. Beauty, intelligence, luxuries, opportunities, success, fame, wealth. You see what others have. And instead of thanking God for the blessing that he has given to them, you just want it for yourself. Envy is comparing your situation to others or even comparing your situation to some dream that you have and in the comparison finding yourself wanting. And so you become demanding, you see. Demanding because what you think because you think what God has for you doesn't stack up compared to what God has for someone else and that deep down God is not good. At least not to you. God is not to be trusted, at least to deliver to you. And therefore you start making your own life. It is based on this comparison of you with another. Uh, I used to live next door to uh, a house and my kitchen was on the second floor of the house where I lived. And that means that we could see down onto the back door of the house next door. The back deck, rather, of the house next door. Uh, And I was in the stage of life where I had young kids. Uh, young kids are messy. Uh, can I just advise you, make sure that when you have young kids that you have uh, pets, especially dogs, so that when the food which you intend for their mouths ends up nowhere near their mouths, whack, off it goes, spaghetti flying everywhere, all that kind of stuff. At least you've got the vacuum cleaner to just kind of do the job. Anyway, my evenings were spent uh, with the young, the young child phase, uh, kind of stressed and anxious and sweaty and, and, and miserable trying to get food that the kids didn't want into their mouths. 
the dogs are sort of getting under feet. There's crying and tears and, and disgust at this food that I've prepared. I'm trying to make them eat green things. They hate green things, broccoli, beans, all that kind of stuff. What they want is tomato sauce on top of some tomato sauce. No, it's just... <laughs> and I would look down out of my window, my second story window, and glance at the deck of my neighbours, upon which sat my neighbours, who had adult children, sitting there with phone in hand, book on lap, gin and tonic, with a tingling of ice. Tinkle, 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 tinkle. And I would sit there for an hour or two, just chatting, enjoying the time, whiling the time away. I'm dying in the kitchen up next door, before they would wander off down the road for a quick bite to eat. Well, I'm changing habits. I'd be okay if I was just sitting there, if I was uh, just looking after my kids myself. But it seemed the alternative. It seemed the other situation. Seeing it and wanting it. Uh, five years or so after I left school, I saw a classmate driving on the other side of the road at King Street. Okay, so I'm driving up King Street, he's driving down King Street. He was in a big, beautiful, black, convertible BMW. He was dumber than me. He was less motivated than me. He had nothing on me. Except he's in his big black BMW and I'm in my Subaru Sherpa. 666 cc's of rippling, raw motor vehicle power. And I compare and I envy and my discontent rises. So I'm asking yourself the question is just how much envy there is in your heart. I think we're pretty subtle about it. Uh, we rarely act on it. We don't often say much about it. We don't even think the thought consciously usually. We suppress. But it's worth asking yourself, yourself isn't it, how much envy is there in your heart? Envy at her who has the boyfriend or him who has the girlfriend. Envy at those people who seem to breeze through uni, whereas for you, those equations, they just never equate. They just don't work. Envy for people who seem to be very content in their Christian life, whereas for you it's struggle and difficult. Envy for those who never seem to lack anything that they want. But for you, money is tight. You know it's tight. Your parents remind you that it's tight. You want to ask yourself how much envy there is in your heart. A teacher says it is vanity. This comparison and envy, this pursuit of the other, it can never get anywhere, he says. This also is vanity and a chasing after wind. Does that mean just give up? Well, by now we know the teacher well enough to predict that that's not where he'll go. Verse 5. Fools fold their hands. Fools fold their hands and consume their own flesh. They don't do anything with their hands so they've got nothing to eat for themselves. Better is a handful with quiet than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after wind. Fools fold their hands, that is simply sit back and do nothing, uh, but fools also live in ceaseless striving, never satisfied, always driven, always envious. 
The path of wisdom is a handful. Enough. Not too little and not too much. A handful with quiet. Then two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. Uh, the teacher goes on to describe the envious person. Always wanting more and yet having nothing. Verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, the case of solitary individuals without sons or brothers. Yet there is no end to all their toil, and their eyes are never satisfied with riches. For whom am I toiling, they ask, and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Their eyes are never satisfied with riches. It is vanity. That is the product of this envy. Listen to how one fool put it. A man by the name of Harold Hart, whose stock market investing made him a millionaire many times over. A business colleague of his reported the conversation of a meeting the two of them had. I quote, When he arrived, I found... Uh, sorry, when I arrived, I found him resting in his favourite chair with servants waiting on him hand and foot. I sat there waiting as he stared blankly into space. Finally, he muttered, This is a man with wealth that you may even attain yourself. You know, nature has played a great, great hoax on man. You work all your life, go through an endless number of struggles, play all the petty little games, and if you're lucky, you'll finally make it to the top. Well, I made it a long time ago, and you know what? It doesn't mean a damn thing. Nature's made a fool of man, and the biggest fool of all is me. Here I sit, in poor health, exhausted from years of playing the game, well aware that time is running out, and I keep asking myself, Now what, genius? What's your next brilliant move going to be? All that time I spent worrying, manoeuvring. It was meaningless. Life is nothing but a big hoax. We think we're so important. But the truth is, says multi-millionaire Harold Hart, we're nothing. It's like he could have been reading Ecclesiastes, isn't it? I mean, that's not where the teacher will conclude. But he gets close, doesn't he? Chapter 5, verse 10. Uh, the lover of money will not be satisfied with money, nor the lover of wealth with gain. This also is vanity. When goods increase, those who eat them increase. That is, there's more and more. And what gain has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of labourers, whether they eat little or much, but the surfeit of the rich will not let them sleep. This is our consumerist world, isn't it? The world which we inhabit. Driven by the high priests of dissatisfaction. The advertising gurus. One level, of course, we're all consumers engaged in the activity of consumption. We eat, uh, we drink, we create shelters, we wear clothes. And given that not many of us actually grow or make anything much anymore, the way we do those things is by making purchases. In that sense, being a consumer is a neutral thing. Although the word uh, consume, which of course originally means destroy or immolate, it kind of just leads you to worry a little bit, doesn't it? But consumerism, the lover of money never being satisfied, never being enough, consumerism is something different. Consumerism is consumption as an idol. Consumption that tends not merely to the body, but rather something that promises to feed the soul. 
you see this in that sacrament of consumerism, which is the advertising industry. Advertising is built around the principle of hiding a product behind a promise. You sell margarine not by telling people that it works to make toast a little more soggy and easier to chew. That's the truth. You tell people because you sorry, you sell it by telling people that they ought to be congratulated for buying this margarine. And showing people scenes of domestic bliss. Six poofy six foot teenage boys enthusiastically eating the exact food that a perfectly unstressed mother has provided after a gentle frolic in an immaculate backyard. It's crap! It's nonsense! It's stupid! It's entirely unbelievable! But we fall for it, don't we? Because that's not the point how dumb it is. The point is, it's desperately desired. We so much want well-behaved teenage boys who frolic gently with each other in backyards that they kept tidy. And by offering the picture, the image, of some bikini-clad 19-year-old swanning around the beach and saying, if you drink Coke, yes, you'll be like this. It's nonsense. Coke is 25, what, 35, 45, 75% sugar. As if you're going to drink Coke and end up like that. But that's the images of life that we have, you see. And that's the trick to make a link between this product and that life. Of course, it can never work, and that's the point for it not to work. The point of consumerism, the point of advertising, is precisely for it not to work. Because what would happen if it did work? You'd stop buying the product, wouldn't you? The goal is to keep offering you something by tricking you, you'll get it, and then not giving it to you so you'll buy some more. I heard a joke a while ago. There was a man who invented the unbreakable toy. He was assassinated. What toy company wants the unbreakable toy? The whole purpose of toys is that they break. So then parents buy them again, and again, and again. No one wants an unbreakable toy, because that doesn't suit our consumption, our consumerism. That you go round and round the cycle, and addiction sets in. The advertising stokes the fires of our desires, and at the same time ensures that they are never truly satisfied, and so next time we need a bigger hit. We become consumption idolaters. Because that's what it is. It's wealth and consumption as an idolatry. We're distracted from real issues of the soul, things like character and meaning and duty, and led to think only about the banal and trivial. Or if that doesn't work, we're told that those issues of the soul can be met elsewhere than God. We learn that if we're feeling a little bit down, what do you need? You know what you need if you're feeling a bit down. A bit of retail therapy. Get shopping is the answer to everything. It's pathetic. We're taught to be self-centered, not other person-centered. We're taught to eliminate pain, not sin. We're taught to pursue fun, not character. Instant gratification, not patience. Self-awareness, not self-examination. 
We're taught to see ourselves as isolated individuals seeking satisfaction, not members of a body where sacrifice makes perfect sense. Don't fool yourself that you're immune to all this. Why is it that you buy the clothes that you buy? Why is it that you have the toys that you have? Why is it that the latest gadget that gets introduced will be adopted by Christians pretty much as quickly as any other? We are victims of this. We are perpetrators of this as much as anyone else. And it is an idolatry. Billions and billions of dollars are spent educating to be happy and unhappy little consumerists. The media industry has overtaken the arms industry as the single largest industry in the world. But consumerism will break your heart. It will break your heart because your heart belongs not in things, but in God and in people. See how the teacher puts it, chapter 5, verse 13. There's a grievous ill that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owners to their hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. Though they are parents of children, they have nothing in their hands. As they came from their mother's womb, so they shall go again, naked as they came. They shall take nothing for their toil, which they may carry away with their hands. This also is a grievous ill. Just as they came, so shall they go. And what gain do they have from their toiling uh, from toiling for the wind. Besides all their days they eat in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and resentment. That's better translated anger. This is a dreadful lot. The idolatry of wealth. It's like all idolatries. It will kill you. It will destroy your soul. If your worship is not the worship of the true and living God, it will destroy you because it will never give to you what you ask from it. I told you I didn't think that this would be a happy time this afternoon. Because you see, you are very wealthy by the world's standards. And this is the predominant picture that the teacher has of your life. Now it's possible for the wealthy not to be greedy and envious in their wealth. Verse 18, look what he says. This is what I've seen to be good. Chapter 5, 18. It is fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of the life God gives us, for this is our life. Likewise, all to whom God gives wealth and possessions and whom he enables to enjoy them and to accept their lot and find enjoyment in their toil, this is the gift of God. For they will scarcely brood over the days of their lives because God keeps them occupied with the joy of their heart. You see, the the teacher recognises that it's possible for those who are wealthy not to be consumed by it, but not to turn it into an idolatry. It's possible, but it's not likely. Uh, 200 years ago, John Wesley wrote this. I fear wherever riches have increased, the essence of religion has decreased in the same proportion. What is the richest part of the world today? What is the least Christian part of the world today? He was right. Therefore, he goes on, I do not see how it is possible in the nature of things for any revival of true religion to continue long. For religion must necessarily produce both industry and frugality, says Wesley. And these cannot but produce riches. But as riches increase, so will pride 
anger and love of the world in all its branches. That's just straight Ecclesiastes. He concludes, is there no way to prevent, prevent this, this continual decay of pure religion? We ought not to prevent people from being diligent and frugal. Then he concludes almost in despair, we must exhort all Christians to gain all they can and to save all they can. That is, in effect, to grow rich. Elsewhere he says, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. That was Wesley. I think the teacher is even less optimistic in chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy upon mankind, uh, humankind, those to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honour, so that they lack nothing of all that they desire, yet God does not enable them to enjoy these things, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, it is a grievous ill. A man may beget a hundred children and live many years. But however many are the days of his years, if he does not enjoy life's good things or has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes into vanity and goes into darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. This is the dreadful indigestion of materialism. A person bloated on her own or his own possessions, so full that they can never enjoy what they have. And the teacher shocks us, doesn't he? He says, better is a stillborn child than this dreadful, idolatrous slavery of wealth seeking more wealth, never restful, never unanxious, never capable of stopping. The teacher has two modest suggestions. Uh, contentment, we saw previously, better a handful with quiet than two handfuls with toil. And also community. Community, you see, is the opposite of envy. Envy is me. Community is we. Envy is zero sum. I get up by getting over you, by pushing you down, taking what you have. Community is an expanding pie that together we work and achieve more than our competition will allow. This is what he says, chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up the other, but woe to the one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one might prevail against another, two will withstand one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Here is the way of wisdom you see for the teacher. Contentment in community. Not isolated, lonely, empty. The teacher says, be aware of the power that you have. Understand the power of wealth. And use it well. Do not be corrupted by it, so that it beats up your soul. There's another power that the teacher is interested in. It is the power of rulers. This time, I think, from the other side, if you like, not as those who wield the power, but those over whom the power is wielded. The way of the world with political power is much the same as with economic power. It is oppression. 
This is how the vast majority of human beings live. George Steiner, a philosophy and commentator who has the post of extraordinary fellow at Churchill College, Cambridge, writes in this way about the exercise of political power in the 20th century. Inhumanity is, so far as we have historical evidence, perennial. There have been no utopias, no communities of justice or forgiveness. He goes on more specifically, for the whole of Europe and Russia, the 20th century became a time out of hell. Historians estimated more than 70 million the number of men, women and children done to death by warfare, starvation, deportation, political murder and disease between August 1914 and the ethnic cleansing in the Balkans. He says it's not only that education has shown itself incapable of making sensibility and thought resistant to murderous unreason, far more disturbingly the evidence is that refined intellectuality Artistic virtuosity and appreciation, scientific eminence, will all collaborate actively with totalitarian demands or at best remain indifferent, indifferent to surrounding sadism. He repeats, so he concludes, to repeat violence, oppression, economic enslavement and social irrationality have been endemic in history whether tribal or metropolitan. But the 20th century has, owing to the magnitude of massacre, to the insane contrast between available wealth and actual misery, to the probability that thermonuclear and bacterial weapons could in fact terminate man or his environment, given to despair a new warrant. Now some of you know this, that this is the way of the world. And you rail against it and you are determined to change things and to fight the system and to make a difference. Others see the sad faces on World Vision ads but have experienced what's called compassion fatigue. We see just too many faces, too many dead bodies. But after a while, you just become resigned or worse, indifferent and crack open another Coca-Cola. Listen to the teacher's wisdom, which is not the way of a naive utopia, but nor of collusion by default with oppression. Chapter 8, verse 2. Keep the king's commands because of your sacred oath. Do not be terrified. Go from his presence. Do not delay when the matter is unpleasant, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is powerful, and who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys a command will meet no harm, and the wise mind will know the time and way. For every matter has its time and way, although the troubles of mortals lie heavy upon them. This is the path of realism from the teacher. The king does whatever he pleases, and who can say to him, You idiot, what are you doing? And so even if you disagree, even if you hate the way that power is used, the advice of the teacher is don't show it. Uh, find a way forward, obey a command, this is the way of the wise. But the wise also know that there is a time and a way for everything, even a time for the judgment of kings. Verse 7, indeed, they do not know what is to be, for who can tell them how it will be? No one has power over the wind to restrain the wind 
or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from the battle, nor does wickedness deliver those who practice it. All this I observed, applying my mind to all that is done under the sun, while one person exercises authority over another to the other's hurt. Again, this realism does not mean that the teacher has given up. It is not all or nothing. He knows that even in a world in which the wicked prosper and the poor are trampled, at least for now, in that kind of world he can still trust God. Verse 10 of chapter 8. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, Right? God delays. The human heart is fully set to do evil. Though sinners do our evil a hundred times and prolong their lives, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they stand in fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will they prolong their days like a shadow, because they do not stand in fear before God. Neither all, nor nothing. Neither take over, nor just resign yourself. Be wise, knowing that there is a time and a place for everything. And it will be well for those who fear God, but it will not be well for those who are wicked. Therefore the teacher draws his conclusion, verse 14, chapter 8. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people who are treated according to the conduct of the wicked, and there are wicked people who are treated according to the conduct of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, so I commend enjoyment. For there is nothing better for people under the sun than to eat, drink and enjoy themselves, for this will go with them in their toil through the days of the life that God gives them under the sun. The teacher says, face the fact that you live in a world where you will constantly run into injustice. You will see people oppressed. And because of the quality and extent of our communications, we will see them more than at any other time in human history. Do check and make sure that you are not the oppressor, won't you? The teacher says you will not stand in your evil if you do evil. If you do have power, be very careful that you don't bring injustice onto someone Especially know how you treat people who are weaker than you. If you have a sharp tongue, a smart tongue, be very cautious how you use it. If you're very intelligent, make a very specific effort not to hurt people in being right all the time. But know at the same time that in all likelihood you too will be a victim of injustice. Small perhaps or even big. For most, this creates bitterness and even viciousness, doesn't it? But our model is to be that of the teacher. Or perhaps even more clearly, Jesus. Who did not return abuse for abuse. Who did not threaten when threatened. 
but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That's what the text says. Dear God, don't lash out, but entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Respond to the evils that are done to you and around you, knowing that there is a real judgment to come. The teacher knew enough to keep it going. He gets very little sense of how this future judgment will play out and says nothing particularly to say about it. But that doesn't stop it actively working for him, functioning in his life, to sustain him in his fear of God and in his pursuit of this middle path. Neither all nor nothing, but a middle path. We, of course, know much more about this judgment the glorious judgment of Jesus on evil and wickedness. When he will set all things to rights. When he will defeat the power of death and sin in this world. And he will renew it to rejoice as a place of life and peace. Our knowing again, hear me, doesn't mean that the teachers just can be put to one side. No, our knowing gives us even deeper confidence to pursue the path that the teacher outlines for us. We've talked about power, and in a sense it's an ugly topic, I think. Power almost always hurts people. That is the way of the world. For the teacher, this is inevitable and is the pattern of the fool to try and restrain the wind. The only safe place for the use of power is in the fear of God. The only alternative to the idolatrous use of power is laying down that power in worship of the true and living God, not lording it over others, financially or politically, but serving. Serving God and serving others. Listen to the teacher one more time, chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than the sacrifice offered by fools. For they do not know how to keep from doing evil. Never be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be quick to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you upon earth, therefore let your words be few. For dreams come with many cares, and a fool's voice with many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay fulfilling it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your words and destroy the work of your hands? With many dreams come vanities and a multitude of words. But says the teacher, this is the path of wisdom. Fear 